Well, I invite you to turn with me now in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippians. This morning we'll be back in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. As you turn over there, I think back to last week, we focused in on just the first two verses, Philippians 2, 12, and 13. And uh, those verses were more of a general call to keep on obeying Christ. This morning, we'll look at the rest of this text, which is a much more specific call from Paul to his friends in Philippi about what to do or not to do in the text. So let's go ahead and start, like we did last week, by reading through the whole passage before we get into it a little further. So Philippians chapter 2, we'll start in verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Okay, so that's our text last week and this week. And let's remind ourselves of a couple things we saw last week for review, but also maybe somewhere here. So first, this text is directly connected to the text before it. For one thing, Paul's call to not complain fits really well with his focus throughout this section on unity. Okay? But also remember the text starts with the word therefore. Okay, that, verse 12, that therefore at the beginning is pointing right back to the text before this. And that text is where Paul talks in beautiful poetic language about the obedience of Christ all through life, all the way to death, even death on a cross. But that's also the text where it, where Paul talks about the exaltation of Christ to the seat of highest honor. So in light of both Christ's example, but also Christ's authority, Paul says to us, therefore, as you've always obeyed, keep on working out your salvation. Now, the second reminder from last week is that Paul is not calling his friends who've been trusting and obeying Christ for 12 years by now, to start working for their salvation. Okay, verse 12 is not a call to try to earn our salvation. Instead, this is Paul's call to his friends to keep living out their faith the way they have been for the last 12 years. This is a call to Christians to live like it. This is a call, as one translation puts it, to work hard to show the results of our salvation. And the third thing, just a reminder, is we saw last week that verses 12 and 13 
are some of the most helpful verses in the whole New Testament about the Christian life, about what to expect in the Christian experience. They speak very clearly about our role and God's role in sanctification, about how we are fully responsible to run after Jesus, but about how God is the one who empowers us to take every step we take. And we spent a lot of time about on that last week. And it's clear here and everywhere in Paul that we are fully responsible to obey, or as he says here, to work hard to show the results of our salvation. But Paul doesn't stop there in the text with that. Instead, he encourages us with the real hope that we can actually obey Christ. But that hope for doing that is not found in ourselves or in our power, our own self-discipline. Our hope for real change and growth and obedience is what Paul says in verse 13, that it is God who is actively working in us, both the willing and the doing for his good pleasure. We're fully responsible to obey Jesus. We should feel that weight. But we always should remember that we can work out only because God is actively working in us and he is working in us. We should have hope in the Christian life because God is with us and in us and for us and he's always actively working in his children, granting us not just the desire to do what is right, but also the ability to do his will. And Paul says that all of that is for God's good pleasure. You see, God loves to give his children what they need. And God loves to see his children run. God loves to see his beloved children obeying his beloved son. This is a really quick recap of what we spent a lot of time on last week. <clears throat> Today, we're not going to focus so much on the general teaching about the Christian life, but on the specific application Paul makes to his friends about their Christian life. Okay? Now, as we get into the text, verses 14 to 18, okay, I want to just highlight two, two big things about it before we start working through it verse by verse. So the first thing I want to say is that Paul is actually very happy with the Philippians, okay? even though he gives them a very direct challenge about not complaining. Okay? When you hear that challenge, like, do all things without complaining, you might get this feeling like Paul was really upset with them. Okay? So I just, Paul was actually very pleased with what he has seen in this church. Okay? To, to see that, look at verse 12 again. This is how Paul describes what he's seen in the church for 12 years. He says in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. Okay, we saw that last week. But again, I mean, that is an amazing, condom uh, uh, not condemnation, that would be bad, commendation, right? Their obedience to Christ has marked them from the first days that he knew them. Okay. But also look down at the end of the passage. I want to look at verse 17. Now, we're going to come back to this verse later, but it can be a little hard to follow, but, but look at the first part of verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17. Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith. Okay, I want to pay attention to that last phrase. The sacrificial offering of your faith. Okay, now, some of us may have the NIV translation, which is helpful here. It reads like this. Paul says, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service 
that's coming from your faith. We'll come back later to some of this about drink offering. But I just want to highlight that Paul is talking about the sacrifice and service of the Philippians in the text. A service that is sourced in their real faith in Jesus. So even though Paul is going to really give them a strong challenge about complaining, Paul is very happy with what he sees in the church as a whole. And the second just kind of big picture thing, something maybe you can explore on your own, is the more time you spend in this text, the more you'll realize how much Paul is relying on the Old Testament in this text. And the things he's saying are directly connected to a bunch of Old Testament texts and stories. I don't think I really noticed this until this study. But the more I meditate on the verses, the more I realize Paul is calling us as Christ's people to live differently. But not just differently than those in our world, but to live differently as Christ's people today than Israel did in the wilderness in particular. For just one example of this, think of what Paul says in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling. Can you think of any stories in the Old Testament, especially about the first generation of Israel, where grumbling shows up in the story? This was like their biggest problem throughout the wilderness years. And as it turns out, this is actually the only time Paul uses this word in all of his letters. But that word is the word throughout all those stories about grumbling in the wilderness. And there's no way you can read those stories of Israel and not come away with thinking these people grumbled all the time in all circumstances. Like that's what you, that's what you feel like, right? And Paul was calling us, like we saw in the New Testament reading today, to live differently than they did. Now, with those things in mind, let's take a closer look at the text. Starting in verse 14, where Paul takes this general call to obey and applies it to one specific area of life. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing or arguing. Because on the negative side, this is a call to not complain. Okay, this is a tough topic to talk about. This is tough for me to be thinking about because I have a feeling we all admit this is something we struggle with a lot. Okay, on the negative side, this is a call to not complain. On the positive side, you can say this is a call to be thankful, to be content. Okay, but he's going to focus on the negative. Don't complain. Okay, now, this language again comes right out of the stories of Israel, first generation of Israel. They saw with their own eyes, God's saving power in Egypt. But as soon as they got out of Egypt and throughout their whole time in the wilderness, they were marked by grumbling, arguing, and complaining. And if you think back to some of those stories, who were they grumbling against in those stories? Think of all those. I mean, you get, there's tons of these stories in the wilderness. Who did Israel grumble against? Say so they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And then ultimately, a lot of times that's connected to, they, grumble, they were grumbling against God, ultimately. Okay. Now, in the church in Philippi, is, was this happening a lot? You know, that, that's something we're not sure of. We do, we do know that there was at least one significant conflict between two important women in the church who were Paul's dear friends. Paul will talk about that later in the letter. 
And of course, there were probably a bunch of other issues in the church like there are in any church. Okay. But the key thing is that this command is for all the people in the church. Okay. And it's for, it's for all people in our church. Okay. This is a command for all Christians in all circumstances. Because you notice that? Do all things without complaining. We are supposed to be marked out as Christians by not complaining. And I think there's an implication here that those who don't know Christ are likely going to be marked out by complaining. But those who really do know Christ are to be marked out by contentment. Complaining is the natural response to hard things and hard people. Contentment is supernatural. Okay, now, I want to do some more thinking today about complaining. After all, this is something we likely admit we need to hear more about. And this is not something Paul addresses very often at all in his writing. So it's definitely worth taking some time to think about this. Okay, so I want to start with something that I think we all agree with, okay, that we know. I think we know that Christians should be the least likely to complain of any people. Do you agree with that? I think we all, like in our hearts, we know, I should not complain. We should be the least likely people on the, in the world to complain. Why? It's because we know that we have already been blessed beyond measure in Christ. I'm just thinking about some things. You could probably throw a bunch of other things at this. Like our sins are gone. Christ died for all our sins. To add to that, our names are written in heaven. We are right with God. We've been born again. And we have the sure hope of an unshakable kingdom. See, what I'm getting at is the most important things in life are completely settled for us and secure. So we could say we should be the least likely of all people to complain. But we could also say we, we know that's true because we also confess week by week at least these four things about God. Okay, we, we confess week by week that God is good, that God is wise, that God is sovereign, and that God actually loves us. We know those four things and talk about them almost every week. We almost talk about all four every week, okay? And yet, when things are getting hard at work or in the home or in the church or with our health or our money or our car or our country or our kids, it is really easy to forget or doubt any one of those four things. Yeah, I, I've been trying to think back, and it's not that hard, to think of the many things I have complained about, the many times I have complained. And it is hard for me to think of even one situation where I wasn't doubting or forgetting or maybe just refusing to embrace one of those four things about God, that God is good, <clears throat> that God is truly and always good. God never does wrong. He is never not good. Okay. That God is wise. 
that God knows what he's doing. He knows the end from the beginning. I can only see in part. God always has the whole picture in view. That God is sovereign. That nothing happens outside God's control. God holds all things in his hands. And that God actually loves us. God is not just good in theory or in general. God is actively and fully committed to you, to us. God loves us as his very own children. And I doubt any of those things are new, certainly not to anyone who's been here for a while. But if you think back to the last time you were complaining, which I, I'd be surprised if it wasn't between last Sunday and this Sunday. But if you would think back to the last time you complained or murmured about something against God or against your wife or your employer or your parent or your child, I would imagine that you were forgetting or doubting or maybe just flat out refusing to embrace at least one of those four things about God. And this isn't just true for us. This is true in the stories of Israel as well. If you went back to those stories, what you would find in those stories, Israel, when they're complaining, they are questioning the goodness of God or the wisdom of God or the power of God or the love of God for them or some combination of all four of those things. Now, later today, I want to do a little more thinking about complaining. But for right now, I want to summarize what we've said and move on in the text. Okay? So Christians should be the least likely people to complain because we know that the most important things in our lives are settled and because we confess every week that God is good, wise, sovereign, and that he actually loves us. Now, I want to look at where Paul goes with this in the text, verse 15, because it's not just this command. There's like an aim with the command. So look at verse 15, uh, verses 14 and 15 together. What happens when Christ's people are marked by contentment instead of by complaining? Look at verse 14 again. Do all things without grumbling or arguing so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. And again, Paul is convinced that complaining is completely natural in the world, normal in the world. That's how he can say what he says here. When Christ's people, in spite of all our differences and all the hard things we go through, are marked by contentment, Rather than by complaining, what happens? We are shown to be the true children of God. Paul says this is the path toward being the children of God in a way that the first generation of Israel failed to be. You see, God wanted them to be blameless and innocent. All of this language is in the song that I read, the song of Moses, by the way. God wanted them to be blameless and innocent. God wanted them to be the children of God without blemish. God called Israel out of Egypt to be a light for the nations. And yet, when you read those stories, their complaining and their disunity led them to fail in their call 
But now as Paul looks at the church, which is made up primarily of Gentiles, by the way, what does he see? He sees that we are the light of the world. And he sees that we are living in a really, really dark place. We live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And Paul connects those things and says, that is why we are here. That is why God has put us here, to let our light shine in this world right in the middle of a crooked and twisted generation. And in the text, though Paul could have pointed to many things, in this text, what does he say will make our light shine in the darkness? It's when we go through hard things together as one. It's when we go through hard things or deal with hard people without complaining. It's when we're marked instead by peace, love, contentment. When a church or the church is marked by that, the witness of that church in the world is bright. The light shines in the darkness. But when complaining, griping, disunity marks a church or the church, the witness of that church in this world is dramatically weakened. And I think many of us have seen both. The strengthening of our witness and the weakening of our witness. Contentment and unity always strengthen the message that we preach. But grumbling and division undermine our message to the world. As Paul says at the beginning of verse 16, we will shine as lights in the world as we hold fast to the word of life. And, and that phrase, hold fast, I would agree with many who would see the sense of that as also holding forth the word. Because okay, this text, I think, has our witness to the world in view. In other words, Christians don't just hold fast to the word, though we need to do that. Christians also hold forth the word to the world. We always do both. And Paul's heart for his friends is that they will shine as lights in a dark world as they keep holding forth the word of life to the world. And then at the end of our text, Paul lets us in once again on how he's thinking about his future, on what's on his mind as he nears the finish line. So look at verse 16, and we'll read through the end of the text. Paul says, I want you to keep holding fast or holding forth the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I didn't run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. And likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. We're not going to spend as much time on these verses, but, but I'll comment on a couple things. <clears throat> this is about Paul's hope in ministry. I don't know if you have like a, a hope at the end of your life, a hope that's connected to the day of Christ. You probably should. We probably should. Paul talks about this, this a lot. And here he says, my hope is that I'll be able to stand before Christ on the day of Christ and to be proud of all Christ did through me. And this here is pride in a good sense. Paul had a goal of getting to 
the day of Christ, like the day when Jesus came, the day when he stood before Christ, and being surrounded by the people he had invested in, and of being proud on that day of all that Christ did through him. This is part of why Paul kept working with people, even when it was hard to do so. This is part of why he didn't give up on people. He kept on teaching them, correcting them, praying for them, investing in them, because his goal was to present them to Jesus, pure and blameless, with great joy. He talks about this in many places. And here, he talks about how he longed to be able to see on that day the fruit of his labors, which would be the people he had invested in being ready to meet the Lord. May God give us that kind of heart for our brothers and sisters in the church, for our friends outside the church, that one day they would stand, even if they don't know Christ today, that they would stand on the day of Christ ready to meet the Lord. And may God give us this kind of heart for our children. What is our aim in parenting? Would it not be this, that our children would be ready to meet Jesus? May our longing be to see them ready to meet the Lord, knowing that Christ used us in some small way, in spite of all our many shortcomings, to help them get there, pure and blameless. And the second thing is you think about those verses, is did you notice Paul's joy, even in the face of potential death? I think that's what verses 17 and 18 are about. On the one hand, Paul had seen the faithful service of his friends in Philippi for years. And he knew that Christ had given him the privilege of having a hand in that, a part in that. And so now, as he's nearing the end of his life, this is what he tells them. He says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering on your sacrifice, I rejoice in that, and I want you to rejoice with me. Now, that can be a little hard to understand because I, even myself, I don't think I was very familiar with drink offerings in the Old Testament. They are in the Old Testament. It's not something that's like prominent. And so Paul's like tapping into this picture that I don't know that we're like super familiar with. Maybe you are. That's great if you are. But, but the basic idea with a drink offering is that someone would offer first the regular sacrifice, like, like an animal or some grain And then the last thing to be offered or added to it would be a drink offering. So you would would pour out olive oil or wine on the sacrifice that had just been offered to the Lord. That's the idea. And Paul is saying that he's seen the faithful sacrifice of the Philippians for years. They've offered themselves faithfully again and again to the Lord And throughout their journey, Paul knows he's had a part to play in that. Paul has poured himself out for them again and again and again. And so now, as he knows his own death might be just in front of him, and that his chances to help them might be almost over, he wants them to know he's happy and content. 
and he's even more than willing to pour out his very life for Jesus and for them. He's happy and content if this is the last thing he can do for them. If his death is just the last touch, the drink offering, the final thing to be added to their sacrifice, he's okay. He's happy with it. And he says, I'm glad, I rejoice, and I want you to rejoice with me too, if that's what it takes. Now, this is our text for today. And that closes a several-week study of the main exhortation section of the book. Paul's moved from a general call to obey Christ to the specific call to his friends to not complain. And then he's connected that to our witness to the world. So as we close, I want to come back one more time to the topic of complaining. And I want to try to connect complaining to the church and then to Christ. So here are three final reflections about complaining. First one, a little more of a warning. It is really, really easy to find things to complain about in church. It is easy to grumble about other people in the same church you're in. Why? Because the church is made up of very different people and because everyone in the church sins and fails in lots of ways. So if you are looking for things to complain about, I'm sure you can find them. You can find them here. It is really easy to find hard people in a church. It's really easy to grumble against Christian leadership. After all, Christian leaders are all imperfect. The pastors here are failing in many ways, I'm sure. I don't say this to excuse us or our church or any church. But I say this instead to remind us that if we really want to, we will be able to find many things to complain about in every church. We will always find shortcomings in other people. And if we're honest, we know others can find lots of shortcomings in us too. So my point is, let's acknowledge that and be on guard against this. And let us pray for each other about this. And instead of complaining, may we do, by God's grace, what Paul calls us to in Colossians when he says, may we clothe ourselves with things like compassion, kindness, patience, forbearance, which is kind of like putting up with a lot of stuff that bothers you. And if anyone has the complaint against another, Paul says, let's be quick to forgive each other as Christ has first forgiven us of a lot more. And over all these good things, Paul says, let's clothe ourselves with love, which binds everything together in unity. And then once again, I'd point us back to what we know about God and connect that to the church too. In God's wisdom and sovereignty, God brought us together right here into the very same body. God has united this people into one body. This is how we got here. God did this to us. God did this to us. God put us together knowing all our differences 
and all our shortcomings and all the ways we might bother each other. <laughs> God did this to us and for us. He is wise and good and sovereign, and he loves us. And the, sign that, and the, and the fact that we're here is a sign of all of that. Okay? Now, the second thing is a little more of a clarification. So first is a little bit more of a warning. Second is a little more of a clarification about complaining versus expressing sorrow, confusion, disappointment, or even anger in a righteous way to other people. Okay, now, it often takes wisdom for us to know when we are crossing the line from sharing something that we need help with to complaining, murmuring, and grumbling. I don't think it's always as hard as we might think, but it can take wisdom, okay? But there's a difference between these things. And what I want to be very clear about is that the call to us to not complain is not a call to us to never share the hard things in our lives with each other. <clears throat> it's not a call to put a good spin on everything or to act like everything is okay all the time, even when it's really not, even when you're dying inside because you fear that you might possibly be viewed as complaining. What I'm getting at is that there's a difference between complaining and expressing the wrestling going on in your heart over hard things. Now, it's usually, I don't think it's actually all that difficult for us to determine the difference on most occasions. Usually, we can tell by like our temperature or our tone or whatever. I mean, there's lots of ways we can tell this. But I want to offer a couple things that might be helpful to think about, like about complaining versus honest wrestling and sharing with others. And complaining is often closely associated with blaming other people. Okay, for example, there is a difference between talking about all the hardships going on at your job versus blaming your boss for being such a jerk. There's a difference between those. Complaining is often closely connected to casting blame on people. Complaining is also often done with no righteous goal in view at all. Okay, there is a difference between coming to someone and pouring out your soul and your frustrations to them, asking for help because you actually want to honor Christ in this terribly hard thing versus going to someone to just dump out all our anger so we feel relieved and they tell us we're awesome. <clears throat> okay, these are just broad statements, of course, but I'm just pointing out that complaining or grumbling is often done with no higher end, no righteous goal in view at all. And then complaining is also often done with little thought of God or with very distorted views of God in our hearts. There's a big difference between wrestling with hard circumstances or tough people from the posture of faith in God and respect for God. That's what you see throughout the Bible and throughout the Psalms real, open struggles from a posture of faith and respect for God versus forgetting God altogether or even starting to attack God for what's going on. Now, a lot more could be said about, about those things, but my larger point in all of this is actually that we should not take a call to not complain 
as a call to never say anything to anyone about how we're doing. We need to have others help us with our real frustrations and confusions and disappointments and sorrows and even our anger. We can go to God with anything. He already knows what's going on. And we can go to each other with our burdens, and we need that. But let's go to God and to each other, not with it all figured out, but looking for real help about how to honor Christ in the hard things we face. And then the last thing is I want to leave us with this short word of encouragement, connecting complaining to Christ. You know that Christ never complained in a sinful way. He had far more to complain about than any of us, and he never did it. That is amazing. And then second, I want to praise God that Christ died for our complaining. And I want to put it that way because I want to bring some measure of seriousness to this issue. Christ died for our complaining. Because I think it's easy for us to talk about, yeah, we complain a lot, but Christ died for that. May this lead to godly sorrow for our complaining last week, but may it also bring sweet comfort to our souls because this is something I know we all struggle with. And we can remember that all the guilt we have for every bit of complaining we've ever done has been nailed to the cross, and we bear it no more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us in giving us a really direct challenge about something we all need to hear about. And I thank you for your heart, Lord, for us as your children, that we might be pure and blameless, and also your heart for outsiders, You want us to to follow you and you're working in us so that we will, so that we can shine as lights in this world in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And I pray that these words and meditations today will lead us to greater holiness, to greater contentment, to greater reliance on your power to help us with something hard and that ultimately this talk on complaining may lead us back to Christ who never complained but who willingly died for our complaining and who has been raised and who offers us free pardon for all our sins. We thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.